Well, have you ever been in next in line after something spectacular? So, you know the feeling you're on the schedule to give an important presentation at work and your coworker presenting ahead of you has one of those mic drop moments, leaving everybody just in awe of the research they've done. Maybe you're a, you're a batter in Little League and you remember the distinct honor of coming up to bat after the guy who just belted a grand slam. Nobody's interested in you. Maybe you're kind of like me and you like thinking about the things you've done. And uh, you're at a dinner party and you're getting ready to share all the best stories about your recent trip to New Jersey. And uh, I think it's New Jersey. And uh, the guy who's hosting just starts talking about his recent trip to the Himalayas and skydiving off of helicopters. I saw an article online this week about how some video game companies are trying to figure out how in the world to follow the act that has been Pokemon Go. How can you improve on that? How can you make more money than Pikachu? It's always challenging to be the one who has to follow on something amazing. Well, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that the the passage we considered together was one of the most amazing passages in Scripture. One of the richest, densest portions of God's Word. So in in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, the Apostle Paul strung together a single 202-word sentence that just kept building on itself in wonder and amazement at God's plan to save us. And, And Paul showed us how Christ... Uh, has given us, or in Christ, God has given us every blessing in the heavenly places. So we looked at how we are adopted by God. We're his children. We looked at how we're redeemed by God through Christ. And we looked how we're sealed by the Holy Spirit for this inheritance in heaven. Paul plumbed the depths of God's plan from eternity, and he just overflowed with praise. And by the time we were done considering that passage, I bet some of you were kind of mentally fatigued and zoning out. Because Paul, in his sentence, just keeps going. He, doesn't, he neglects periods. He forgets to take a breath. And it all ended with, what, do you remember? With God getting all the praise, all the glory for his grace. And so we come this morning to the verses immediately following on the heels of that passage. And we wonder, what's Paul going to say next? How can he follow up on that? What's next for us, Paul? If this is true, what do you have to say? Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians and let's find out. So this morning we'll be looking at at chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. If, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Ephesians is one of the books of the New Testament. So that's, there's two testaments in the Bible. The New Testament is all written after Jesus has died and risen again. And Ephesians is actually a letter. It's a letter written by a man named Paul, who was one of the first missionaries of the church. And he's writing to what we, what seems to be a group of churches in and around Ephesus. Uh, which was an ancient port city uh, in what is now the west coast of Turkey. And this letter by Paul, if you look ahead, is, is going to be split into six chapters and pretty evenly divides into chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6 having their own themes. So the first three chapters talk about what it means to have our identity in Christ. And the second three chapters talk about how to live that out how to start talking about how we should act and live as followers of Christ. So, if you're visiting with us and and joining with us for the first time this morning, we're planning on walking through this little letter over the next few months and little by little seeing what God would have us know about Christ and the gospel and how to glorify Him with our lives. 
If you're here and you don't own a Bible or have a Bible that you can easily read at home, uh, we have Bibles out on the Connect table. Feel free to pick up one of those. Pick up one for family or friends. We'd love to give that to you, and we're grateful that you're here. All right, well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and, and follow along as I begin in verse 15. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, here we see Paul following on the heels of this great sentence of worship. And what does he do? He focuses on the church, doesn't he? And as he considers the church, he does so in three ways. And these are going to be our three points for this morning's sermon. So first, Paul gives thanks for the church. He gives thanks for the church. And second, he prays for the church. He prays for the church. And then third and finally, he exalts Christ as head of the church. He exalts Christ as head of the church. So let's start with that first thing. Paul gives thanks for the church. And we see this right away, right? There in verse 15, Paul says, Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So Paul has heard about these churches, and he's heard two important things about them, right? First, he's heard that they have faith. They have faith in the Lord Jesus. They trust in Christ. They understand that only in Christ can God bless his people. They have this eternal hope in one man, Jesus Christ. And this faith is evident. Paul hears of it, and he he thanks God for it. And the second thing that Paul hears and gives thanks for is that these Christians love all the saints. So we talked about that word saints in our first sermon three weeks ago. And remember, if you were here, that when Paul's talking about saints, he's not talking about particularly good or particularly religious Mother Teresa-like figures. His definition of the term saint is someone who has been set apart for God's glory. Someone who has been set apart for God's glory. And so Paul uses this term then to refer to every Christian. Every Christian has been separated from the world and from sin and death and set apart for God's glory. And so Paul here is thankful because this church has faith in Christ and loves everybody in the church. They love all the saints. And church, these two things Paul is grateful for in this ancient church, these are, these are actually two categories that are helpful for us to consider as well. Actually, even going further than that, these are actually two essential marks in what it means to be Christians living together in community, in Purcellville, as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. 
We strive to live in faith and in love. Actually, these two things growing in our hearts will show that we are actually Christians. So first, as we seek to establish this new church, remember this is our third Sunday, as we seek to establish this on the truth of the gospel, we strive to be full of faith in Christ. He's the one that's going to give us vitality and understanding. That's why we have a statement of faith here at Loudoun Valley. Because we believe it's important that we know and we understand what we believe together as a church about what God has revealed himself to be in Scripture, how we can trust in Christ for salvation. But this faith never ends by itself. It's never just mere, mere knowledge, mere doctrinal agreement. Now, the faith we have in Christ in, in the truth of the gospel is a faith that will affect the way we live. It will affect the way we see others, the way we see the world. And that's why we not only have a statement of faith, but we have a membership covenant. We have a commitment that we make to each other. If this is true about God, well then let's live this way. And let's hold each other accountable to live this way. So brothers and sisters, as those who have been made in Christ, we should expect to see in our hearts these two things growing increasingly. Faith in Christ. Love for the church. I mean, we've been shown the love of God so clearly in the cross, right? And we now have that life of Christ living through us. And so we will find ourselves compelled to love others, to show the mercy we've experienced to those around us in the church. These are not optional for us. Both must be true if we're to be faithful. This isn't actually a popular idea in today's church, I don't think. So in many churches, even you might say that these two things cannot coexist, right? So either, either we can choose to be a church as a hardliner for the truth, right? This is who we are. This is what we believe about, about the Bible. Tough. Or we're a church that's gracious, that accepts others, right? We can either be a church that's united in harmony and love, or we're going to be a church that talks a lot about doctrine and teaching. But we can't be both. Well, Paul here sees those two things as two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate them. So just consider the gospel, right? The thing that we rejoice in, the news that Jesus has come and laid down his life for us. This gospel is truth. We must have faith in this truth. This Savior who came full of grace and truth. So it's this doctrine, this teaching about Jesus that gives us this faith and this new life. And it's this gospel that then gives us reason to love one another. So our love for each other, divorced from that gospel, will shrivel up and die. If we just love each other because we're likable, it's not going to last more than one Sunday morning. We need the truth of the gospel to motivate our love. In the same way, our faith in Christ, divorced from love for one another, that shows that we don't even understand that gospel to begin with. Because the gospel sets us free and motivates us to show mercy to the church. So church, as we grow here in the beginning stages of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, let's grow in these two things. Let's grow in faith in Christ and love for one another. And be encouraged. Remember, church, that actually this is our most powerful witness. So our witness doesn't end with our personal relationships, and our personal evangelism. It's not merely uh, the way we show an example to the world of living differently from them. 
Now, a powerful proof about the truth of the gospel is the way we decide to live together as a church. Jesus told his disciples, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. Okay, by what, Jesus? If you have love for one another. So when you, when, if you're a member of this church, when you show up on Sunday mornings for Sunday morning services, you're not merely just participating in a religious ritual. You're showcasing to the world that's watching what it looks like to be affected by the gospel and have that truth work itself out in the way we love one another. So Paul hears about these things and he rejoices, right? And notice that Paul rejoices because he's really attentive to the way the church is growing. So he's heard good things about them and now he's eager to point those things out and say, look, I see evidence of grace in your life. Praise God. I think this is another good word for us as a new church, brothers and sisters. Loudoun Valley Baptist Church has been covenanted together for three weeks. We've just started this community. So let's stop for a second and, and think, where have we seen faith in Christ and love for the saints evidenced in three weeks here? I mean, I see it all over, and I praise God for it. I give thanks to God that you're a church that has great faith in Christ. You're attentive to our time in God's word. I mean, I was preaching last week, and I was like, nobody's talking. So you can talk. I mean, kids can make noise and stuff, but you're all looking at me, and you're listening to the word. That's amazing. Thank you. You're really serious about understanding the truth of God's word, and I'm grateful for that. And I also give thanks for your love for one another. You're a church that's active in serving each other. Thank you to uh, the dozen or 20 of you that showed up at 9 to help us set up this morning. Thank you to those who aren't with us right now because they're helping our kids so that the rest of us can, can listen and understand the word. So as your pastor, I give thanks because I see evidence of grace and truth, of faith and love in you. Thank you. And let's not end it with me. Let's be disciplined at church to encourage one another when we see these things. So as we pray through our membership directory or as we bump into each other on Sunday mornings or around town, let's be on the lookout for evidences of grace in one another. And when we see those things, let's encourage those people verbally and immediately. Let's encourage one another. Let's text each other. Let's shoot emails to each other saying, I've seen the gospel at work in your life this week. This won't be easy most of the time. There will be plenty of opportunities when it's much easier to see sin in each other's lives, to see evidences of pride and laziness and anger. There's time to confront those things as we are obedient. But let me encourage you to cultivate the difficult discipline of looking for those little proofs of God's grace in one another. Actually, let's start now. So think for a second. Don't worry, we're not going to talk to each other. Just think. This is a practice for you, personally. Who is a person here in this church who you find easy to be critical of? What would it look like this week to purposefully encourage them and pray for them? My prayer is that we grow in faith in Christ and love for the saints. And that's the first thing we see Paul doing in this passage. He gives thanks for the ways the church is growing. Secondly, Paul prays for the church. Paul prays for the church. We see that at the beginning of verse 16. 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer, says Paul. So Paul is praying for the church, and then what's he praying for? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul is praying in response to verses 3 to 14, this great salvation plan of God. And he's praying that the church would know this God better. That's the main thrust of this whole prayer of Paul. He's asking God to send his spirit so that the church can better understand God. So Paul knows it's not enough to kind of go to that fire hose of theology we got last week in verses 3 to 14 and just kind of try to ingest that as much as we can. No, we need to plunge further in, he says. And we need to seek to know the God who's given us these blessings in Christ. Paul prays that we would not only know true things about God, but that we would know God himself. So let me try to illustrate this for you. So when I was a teenager, I loved all things NBA basketball. So I sent fan mail to my favorite players and broadcasters. I spent way too much lawn mowing money on trading cards, and I freaked out when one of those cards would have the little piece of game-worn jersey in it. I went to Philadelphia 76ers games because I grew up in the Philly area. I begged for jerseys for my birthday. I stayed up late to record games on the radio so I could re-listen to them. But the pinnacle of my addiction was purchasing a copy of the annual register of the NBA in the year 2000 with all these scintillating statistics of every single player and every single coach and memorizing it, almost. Looking at it hours and hours on end, memorizing my favorite player's height, their weight, where they went to college, how many points per game they scored. I even knew Dikembe Mutombo's full African name, which is like nine names long, so you can ask me about that afterwards. (laughs) But with all that knowledge about the NBA, all those hours spent trying to understand and know who my favorite players were, I think if you'd come to me and ask me, you know, what's John Stockton like personally? And what's he like as a father? What's he like as a husband? What's he like as a friend? I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I loved John Stockton. I followed him, but I didn't know anything about his personal life much. I knew a lot about these players. I didn't know them. I'd only tracked their careers from afar. And that's a, that's a lot like, I think, what Paul's focusing on here in his prayer. He just explained to us last week these three blessings, adoption, redemption, and inheritance. And he laid these out for us. But then he prays earnestly that we would know them. That we would understand them. That we would know God who gives them to us. So look there in verse um, verse 19. Actually, back up just a little bit. I lost my place. So friends, I think this is a word of caution for us this morning. So back on track. So especially, especially if you're a young person or a teenager. So I encourage you to take this to heart. So I'm not much older than you. I, I enjoy hanging out with you. I enjoy talking NBA and Pokemon with you, even though I don't understand one of those things. But please take this seriously. So coming to church with your parents, knowing all the names of the books of the Bible by heart, being familiar with with terms of theology like redemption and faith, that's all fine and good. That's great. That doesn't mean you know God. I urge you, 
teenagers, young people, pray this prayer of Paul. Pray that you would have the spirit of wisdom so that you would know God, that you would know him, not just as an idea, not just as a system of thought, not just the way your parents think, but that you would pursue him for yourself and seek to know his heart. So how can you do that? Well, I think you know the answer, but still true. Read about him in the Bible. Pray that he would reveal himself to you in his word. So the Bible, says Paul later in chapter 6 of Ephesians, is the Spirit's weapon that he uses to pierce your heart and reveal God to you. So read the Bible. Read it and then talk about it. Talk about it with your parents. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with someone who's older in the church. Talk to me if you'd like to connect with somebody to read the Bible together. Seriously, if, if you're going to do this Christian thing because you've always been a Christian, don't fool yourself. Don't do this just to make your parents happy, to maintain an image in the Christian community. Be a Christian because you want to know God. Knowing Him is more satisfying than how many likes you're getting on Instagram. It's more exciting than any success you'll have in sports. It's what you were made for. And brothers and sisters, members of this local body, I mentioned our membership covenant earlier, and I remember that second sentence of our covenant. There we promise that we'll work to build up this church in the knowledge and maturity of Christ. So let's commit afresh to doing that this morning. Let's pray that as a church we would strive to know Christ and to grow in Him. And if you're struggling with a way to pray for the church, so you're praying for the membership director and you're like, I I don't know how to pray for this person, I don't even know them, here's a ready-made prayer for you, inspired by the Holy Spirit through the words of Paul. Pray that we would know God. And remember, remember, even as I urge you to know God this morning, take comfort in the fact that he's first pursued you. The theologian J.I. Packer writes, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that underlies that, the fact that he knows me. So take comfort in that Christian. Don't go at this thinking this is how you're going to make God happy with you. This is how you pursue God who has brought you to himself. Well, Paul's prayer continues, and he prays there in verse 18 that the church would have the eyes of their heart enlightened. It's an odd phrase, I think. So our hearts don't have eyes. Here, Paul is, not, is, is talking about spiritual eyesight. So he's talking about the ability to see what God's doing in the world. It's tied to that phrase we've already seen a couple times in Ephesians, that phrase, heavenly places. So look back there in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Paul says that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. And coming up in verse 20 that we'll look at soon, Paul says that Christ is seated in the heavenly places. So what does that mean again? Well, if you remember last week we talked about this, we, it doesn't necessarily mean heaven. It, instead, it refers to the spiritual realm of reality all around us. So behind the scenes in our life, behind the scenes in our world, there's a realm of spiritual powers at war with one another. Paul, again, is going to talk about this much more in chapter 6. But here he talks about this spiritual realm. And he asks the Lord to send the Spirit to give us eyesight so that we can see what's happening there. We can see God's work in the world. We can see Jesus exalted and throned even now in the heavenly places. We can see the world the way God sees it. 
which is the way it really is. And so with that request, Paul prays specifically that we would have eyes to see three things, three spiritual realities. So we're in point two, and now we have three subpoints. So have fun with that, note takers. So three spiritual realities. So first we see there in verse 18, Paul prays that we would know what? That we would know what is the hope to which he has called us. So Paul has talked about this future inheritance that's coming and the hope we have. And now he prays that we would know this hope. This hope we have in our new life in Christ. In this new life that now has meaning. It's filled with suffering, yes, but ends in glory. That we'd have this hope of sharing in the riches of the glory of God forever. Of being holy and blameless in his presence. I was thinking this past week about what that will be like. What will it be like to be in front of Christ, holy and blameless, not able to sin? Seriously, how wonderful will that be? I mean, even in our best, most happiest days here in our life, there's elements of sin and evil all over. So even when we're totally happy, we're worried that our happy time won't last, right? We're fearful of what others will think of us. We still fight the indwelling sins of lust and pride. But think about it. One day, you won't have to worry about being tempted anymore. There will no, be no more temptation. You will be perfectly at rest in the presence of your king. The old hymn on Jordan's stormy banks talks about crossing into heaven. And the hymn writer talks about bidding his anxious fears goodbye. I love that. You know, goodbyes are a sad thing. Think about saying goodbye to your anxiety. Think about saying goodbye to your fear, to your lust, to your anger. What joy that will be, church. I want to know that hope. Paul wants us as a church to know that hope, that this life of suffering will end in glory. I mean, Paul was a prisoner, right? He's a prisoner as he wrote this, and yet he had this hope. He was a prisoner of Rome, But he was more than that. He was a prisoner of hope. He was held captive to this promise of his future in Christ. So Paul prays first that we would know the hope to which we've been called. Look there at the second half of verse 18. Paul wants us to know something still more. So this is the second spiritual reality he wants us to know. He wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. If you remember last week, we talked about this idea of inheritance and how it has different meanings that Paul's already used in, script, in, in Ephesians. So it's both referred to God's inheritance, which means his church, and it's referred to our inheritance, which means ultimately God. And so there's debate about what this means here. Are we talking about God's inheritance or are we talking about ours? I think it could go either way. But really, whichever way it goes, we know here that Paul is talking about the truth that God has chosen us to be his people and he's guaranteed us an inherit, uh, eternity of joy with him forever. And he wants us to know this. He wants us to know the promise of this inheritance and how rich and expansive and magnificent it is. I'm sure this is one of the ways Paul was able to endure, the primary way he was able to endure his sufferings. He knew that his inheritance was not in his career, not in his family, Not even in the fact that he could one day be out of jail. His inheritance was in God himself, in church. 
What a motivation that is for us to persevere in our suffering. To endure our hurts, our fears. Our suffering has meaning because we are headed somewhere. We're being prepared for something. And in the end, this, this life is just a dress rehearsal for that big show. This life is just an internship to prepare us for the job in the big city. We're looking for something more. And we want to know it. And that changes the way we live here. Paul prays that we would know this inheritance, that we would cling to it, and that we would live like it's true. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I think this probably sounds strange to you. It would to me. That we as Christians will be looking for our greatest joy, not here, not right now, not ultimately in this world, but after we die. Well, if that's something that seems strange, we agree. Because you know as Christians, we, we often struggle ourselves with trying to make our lives worth it here. We want to make ourselves great here. We want to be successful here. And so, as we do that though, we realize again and again that those things just don't make us happy. So whatever savings we stow away, whatever benefits we save up for retirement, whatever money we plan to leave our kids, at the end of the day, we just remember that we're not going to be around to enjoy that anyway. We're going to die. And that's going to be it. Friend, the message of the gospel is that there's a better inheritance for us. There's a better inheritance that's given to us, offered to us in Christ. You see, each one of us was designed to worship God, to love Him and serve Him. But each one of us has turned our own way. We've rejected God. And in doing so, we rightfully deserve His justice, His condemnation. But the amazing news that we've already been talking about and singing about and praying about this morning is that when we were under this sentence of death, God had mercy on us. He sent His Son to take our punishment in our place. Jesus came and He lived a perfect life, the life we could never have lived, and He died the death that we were supposed to die. And then He rose again. He showed He he defeated our death. He gave us spiritual life. So, friend, if you're not a Christian, this is what we celebrate. We're not some sort of just religious ascetic who just tries to, like, not have fun because we think that God will make us, bless us because we're not having fun here in life. We, we want greater joy. We want greater blessing. And so we want to wait for our inheritance. So turn away, friend. Turn away from the promises the world gives you. They will never pan out for you. Turn to Jesus. He offers you eternal joy. He offers you himself. If you have questions about this inheritance that we as Christians rejoice in, I'd urge you not to, not to push them off. Find me afterwards. Talk to somebody you sit, have sat down next to. You, talk to somebody you've seen up here. If you want clarification or you're confused about what this means, come talk to us. We would love to spend time sharing with you more about what it means to find life through Christ. So those are the first two things Paul prays that we would know. That we know hope, that we know the riches of our inheritance. And the third thing he wants the church to know is there in verse 19. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So Paul will go on to say that this power God works toward us is the same power he used to raise Jesus from the dead. It's that power that's operating towards us through the Spirit. 
And this power is something beyond anything we know, anything we can measure, anything we can understand. It's the power that rolled back death itself. This power is bigger than any nuclear test. It's bigger than any electromagnetic force, any gravitational pull. All these powers are controlling the universe. This power supersedes them all. And it's this power that's directed towards us. The church. Right towards us. Paul talks more about this in Romans chapter 8. He says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what what does this mean for us? So some indistinct divine power we can't understand is directed towards us. What difference does that have in our lives? Oh, Christian, the fact that God works towards us with this power means that in a very real way, we can have victory over sin. So if you think back to your past week, what, what was the sin that you were struggling with, Christian? That you were battling? So maybe you spent this past week racked with anxiety about an upcoming event, struggling to trust God. Maybe, maybe you spent this past week fighting sexual lust, tooth and nail, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. Maybe you worked hard this past week to repent of anger in your heart towards someone in your family. Maybe you've just really not fought at all. And you've just felt pulled and tossed by the temptations of the world. And so you come with your love for Jesus at a low point this morning. Maybe, maybe you struggle this week with discontentment with where God has you. You found yourself pining for a different home, a different body, a different family. Maybe you're single and you want a spouse. Maybe you're married and you want a different spouse. And so you've had to fight discontentment. Christian, whatever the sin is that's weighing you down this morning, you are united to Christ. And through his resurrection power, you can turn away from it. You can become more like Christ. So what does that look like? I mean, do we have to kind of learn techniques to kind of harness this power and turn it on? How do we get hooked up to this IV of, you know, Christ's blood pulsing through our veins, his power in us? Friends, don't make this too complicated. Don't make it too superstitious. The fact is, it's already done its greatest work on you. So if you're in Christ, you know this power in full. It's raised you from spiritual death. It's made you alive in Christ. And you now have a a heart that's sensitive to God. You have a mind that's being renewed to love God. You have new passions to make his glory known. You have the Holy Spirit to kind of tenderize your conscience and make you love Christ more. So live out this new life you have, Christian. Feast on God's word. Grow. Pursue him. Tell other people about how you don't want to pursue him so that we can do it together. Be confident that the Holy Spirit, as you pursue this new life, will be working in you to produce fruits of joy and peace, self-control and gentleness. Expect to see these things increasing in your life. In doing so, you will be experiencing the power of God, becoming more like Christ. Let's move on to the third and final thing Paul does in this passage. So first, we saw him give thanks for the church. Second, we saw him pray for the church and pray especially that they would know God, know his hope, know his inheritance, know his power. Now we come to our third and final thing this morning. 
And that is that Paul exalts Christ as head of the church. Look there in verse 20. Paul is speaking of this power. And he says that this is the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul is praying about the power at work in believers, and he's linking that and saying, this power towards you is this power that worked in Christ. It was in the resurrection of Christ where the battle in the heavenly places reached its climax. So the devil had his fingers on the very Son of God and had him killed. And for a moment, it seemed like the battle was over. It seemed like Satan was victorious. But then Sunday morning had come. And Jesus had been raised from death to new life, destroying Satan, destroying sin, destroying death, destroying hell, giving new life to his church. And so the man of sorrows we sung about earlier entered the throne room of God no longer as a man of sorrows. He entered as the victor. And it's like he turned and said, Satan, see the man of sorrows now. See him as triumphant over you and your forces. He's now seated at God's right hand. Everything is submitted to his rule. All rule, all authority, all power and dominion, all your hostile powers, all your evil powers of the spiritual realm, all of that is now under Christ. And all we can say is all glory be to Christ, our King. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Church, Paul exalts Jesus here as the one who has once and for all conquered our enemies. They're vanquished. Yes, death still works its bitter effects in the world. Sin still taunts us and pulls our hearts. Satan still works to thwart God's plans and hinder his promises. But church, make no mistake, the final outcome is decided. Satan will never sit on the throne. Death will never sit on the throne. Only one will ever sit on the throne. And that's our king. And one day he will finally crush all his enemies and bring us to himself. What a savior we have. Church, we're on the winning team. What confidence that should give us. What joy that should give us. How we should pray for forgiveness for so often living lives of fear and timidness. Our king is on his throne right now. Nothing will displace him. Paul says that Jesus is now above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And this brings to mind what Paul has written in another letter, in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes that God has exalted Jesus highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that idea of name means more than just our personal, what we are known by. It means our rank. It means our office. Every rank, every office in all of you, the universe is under Christ. And this is not only true now, it's true for eternity. Paul solidifies this with verse 22. And he, that is God, put all things under his feet. Speaking of Christ, you 
remember what Abby read for us at the beginning of our time together from our Old Testament reading in Psalm 110 where God says to David's Lord, meaning Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, so I make your enemies under your feet. They're your stool for your feet. Friends, Jesus has made good on that promise. All his enemies are now under his feet. And so Paul sees us in the heavenly places and he exalts Christ as head over all things. Over the entire universe. And then he says something amazing. This king is head over all things and has been given to whom? Verse 22. And God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Brothers and sisters, in the eyes of the world, Loudoun Valley Baptist Church is not a formidable institution. But here we see that in Christ, we are filled up with all the fullness of the ruler of everything. And that means that our small little church has more power than any other organization in the world. Jesus is our head. He fills us. He empowers us with the greatest power known in the universe. And so church, what courage that gives us. What motivation that gives us. How should that impact the way we live this week? How should that affect the way we share the gospel? How should that affect the way we pray? Church, all the fullness of Christ fills us up. And so let's rejoice in that. Let's pray together. Our God, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We exalt you as king. And we ask that you would fill us with your power. That you would give us a deeper relationship with you. That you would help us to grow in faith and love. It helps to look forward to our inheritance with you forever. Oh Lord, be at work in this church. Help us to grasp the heights and depths of your love and your plan for us. That we would grow to be more like Christ. Change us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.